so if we think about what we're doing today, we're into James chapter 4, and uh, we'll get on to the passage in a minute, but you know I always like to start with a little bit of a story. So unfortunately, we're all born selfish, and babies are naturally selfish. They don't purposely act out of selfishness, but their aim in life is to feel warm, dry, clean, and not hungry. So any uncomfortable change in their circumstances, and they cry, they scream, they have a tantrum. As we grow into a child, the lessons of sharing are hard. And some children find it more difficult than others. There can be pinching or hair pulling or thumping to get their own way. Toddler group or nursery or infant school can be very stressful for all involved. And actually, Josh shines in this one, not in being bad. Josh was the good one. Joseph actually had the struggle at toddler group. Mm. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that now. Then we get into the adolescent years. This is where it gets, it swaps. Oh my. A new level of selfishness and bad behavior shocks parents to the core. Seemingly nice children change overnight as hormones bring in balance and mood swings. Remember Kevin the teenager? If you've ever seen that clip, I couldn't put it on because there's a few swear words in it, but anyway, you know what I mean. There were four and a half years between me and my sister. I was older and at the age of 18, I witnessed firsthand as my sister moved, from the early, moved into the early teenage years. There were many quarrels and some shouting in our house, probably like most houses. And it generally started with my sister choosing only to do what she wanted to do, being lippy to my mum and my mum getting very cross. My sister surpassed it all one day as she stood at the top of the stairs and answered my mum back. My mum ran up the stairs, enraged by what my sister had said. My sister ran into her bedroom and hid in the wardrobe. My dad ran up the stairs after my mum because he'd never seen my mum run up the stairs before and he knew there was gonna be trouble and he better take control of the situation. My dad did not get there in time. In the blink of an eye, my sister had been removed from the wardrobe and found herself on the bed. My dad caught up and stepped in between them. Thankfully, my sister grew out of this phase and we laughed about it later on in life, and we really did. It wasn't that it was a normal thing in our, in our house, but my sister answering back was. Um, my sister is now the kindest, most reliable of sisters, and she is a fantastic mother to her three children. So we all have hope. When we do become adults, though, selfishness does not always disappear completely. We have road rage, shopping queue rage, cafe rage, pub rage, impatient rage. You get the picture. Becoming a Christian ought to be a watershed moment, a time of renewal and change. But unfortunately, it's a slow process for some of us. And for others of us, there's very little change at all. As James begins in chapter 4, you wonder what the Christians were like. Were they Christians at all? And can we really be as bad as those first century Christians? Oh dear, let's read the passage and see. And we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you do not get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. 
you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I am quite a selfish person. I realise that now, but I think John's known that for quite a long time. Within us all, at some period in our lives, we want what we want when we want it. When we make our decisions, they are often about what fits in with us. My life becomes all about me, and your life becomes all about you. Even in churches, quarrels and fights and fallout start when we put ourselves first. You want something, but you do not get it. And instead of biting or hair pulling like a naughty toddler, which is a good job, we don't want that in church, who has not learned the ropes of life, we as adults have moved on, in, on to killing and coveting. Thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not covet are two of the Ten Commandments, part of our everyday law for godly living. A Pharisee once asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Coveting, being jealous about what other people have, is not really loving our neighbour. It's about being jealous about our neighbour. When we covet what other people have, like their house or their car, or their nice clothes, their job, their money, their family, their looks, their beauty, in fact, anything that a neighbour has, and when it, our neighbour isn't just the person who lives next door, it's anyone who we come into contact with, when we covet, we are telling God that we are not satisfied with what we have. And we are also saying, God, you are not enough. Our life now, and more crucially, our life after death, is not defined by our possessions. Our life after death will be defined by our profession of faith in Jesus. Possessions do not travel to heaven, and someone needed to tell the Egyptians that. Paul warns us about the pursuit of things and tells us in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is not, itself is not evil. That's not what he's saying. It's saying the love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. If, uh, we all need money to live, that's a fact. We need money to provide for our families. We need money to pay the bills. We do have to look after our money and use it wisely. It's not wrong to plan ahead and be careful with our money. Uh, we need to clothe our families. Sackcloth is not today's fashion. Work, clothes, money are not wrong in themselves. But when desire moves into wanting more and coveting that others have, then we are in deep and dangerous waters. For some people, they crave and covet recognition, power, glory, not good either. Jesus is our perfect example, example of the, uh, a great uh, selfless life, a life that did not seek power, did not seek recognition or wealth or glory. He gave up everything he had. The creator of the world, the Lord, the Holy One, the Son of God, put his glory aside and became a servant. For Jesus, his life on earth was all about what his father required of him. What did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours, Father. And we need to say that too as we speak to our Heavenly Father. And what about killing? Are we as Christians really killing others just so that we can have what we want? You may not physically kill anyone, but your actions, your bullying, your desires to control another human being may be emotionally killing them. They may be slowly dying on the inside. The light in them may be growing very dim because, me, because of me or because of you. Before we all sit there confident in the assumption that we have not killed anyone, let us take a look at how we speak to people that we supposedly love in our lives and how we speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Quarrelling and fighting. Unfortunately, this happens in most churches at one time or another. Sometimes we do have to speak out and it is difficult and people won't like us for it. Sometimes we have to stand up for the gospel and truth, even in Christian circles. But in this passage, James isn't talking, up, talking about standing up for the gospel. He's talking about ridiculous, mean, selfish, quarrelling and fighting. The best thing to do is step away. If a Christian at church or even in business has wronged you, if you have been hurt emotionally or even with slander, accusations, or they have taken your money or the, your belongings, and yes, it does happen, unbelievable as it is, it does happen. Sometimes you just have to walk away, even if it's a loss to you. Even if you lose money or reputation, walk away. Be the better Christian. The Lord knows. He cares. He is in control. Romans 12:18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You can only do your bit, as far as it depends on you. If you have done all you can do to restore a friendship, a Christian fellowship, a quarrel, a relationship, a family breakdown, if you have done what you can, then leave the rest with the Lord Jesus. He knows and he has the final say and restoration power over all things. It does not mean that we won't find it hard. It does not mean that we will have instant recovery or healing. It means that whatever the situation, it does not keep us captive in a prison of guilt or regret or anger. James goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Do we talk to God at all in our daily lives? Do we make time for prayer? And if we do talk to God in prayer, what do we talk about? Do we talk to God and listen to what he has to say? Do we ask only to satisfy our own desires? Do we make our plans and then seek God's approval? The early church was not doing well in its prayer life. If they were praying at all, then they were praying with selfish requests. God is not a sugar daddy that provides us with everything we could ever ask for. God is a jealous God, and James calls the Christians an adulterous people. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? James doesn't hold anything back, does he? I don't know whether I'd want him in my church. <laughs> You might pick on me all the time. Uh, this form of adultery doesn't involve unfaithfulness to your partner, but unfaithfulness to God. It really has to do with having a, an ex, excess fondness with the things of the world. James reminds us that, that Christians who choose to be friends with the world are an adulterous people. They start to choose what they want above what God wants. Here are some forms of spiritual adultery. You worship your wife. You worship your husband, you worship your family, you worship your car, you worship your power, your status, your money, your hobby, you worship the TV, you worship your food, your drink, your online profile, yourself, your beauty, your intelligence, and you worship your self-sufficiency. If we are putting these things before God, if they are more important to us than God himself, if we sneak off to do what we want, when we want, when we know we should be spending time with God, then we are having an affair with the world. Jesus reminds us how deadly this form of adultery can be. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. It is important as believers that we leave the world behind us. No one likes the word adultery or affair, but I'm sorry to say, at times, it applies to all of us, including me when we dabble with the world. God is a jealous God and he cannot be fooled. Verse five says, or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? The Lord Jesus gave every part of himself to redeem us. And when we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We belong to God and he wants our full attention. Not because God is an envious, envious and jealous in some evil way, but because he loves us perfectly, intensely, completely. And he wants to keep us away from all that would destroy us, from all that bad stuff. To help us with our day-to-day -day living, um, it says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. God gives us the grace to live a faithful Christian life, a life that puts God first. God will oppose any proud feelings we may have, but if we come to him humbly, then he will give us the grace we need. To recap, we fight, we quarrel, we covet, we kill. We have an adulterous relationship with the world. I almost feel like I need to say, what are we going to do? How can we make changes to our spiritual lives? Don't lose hope. There's a big good bit coming. James gives the answer in verses 7 to 10. Submit yourself to God. Yield to God's authority and his will. Commit your life to him and his control 
and be willing to follow him. Like a subject or a servant to their king, out of duty and respect, submit. As one friend to another, in love and best interest, submit. Submit your understanding to the truths of God. Submit your will to the will of God. We are created beings subject to King Jesus. And as such, we forget that we should be submissive. Not through fear, but through love, because it is right to do so. Submitting to God actually takes great courage and demonstrates a spirit of humility. The hardest advice you can give to a self-reliant, self-sufficient man or woman is submission. Most of us do not like to give up our independence. We want to hang on to a little bit of it. We want to be admired by others because we can survive anything. We want to appear in control and confident to everyone who knows us. By submitting ourselves voluntarily and freely, not only out of obedience but with humility, we recognise our own weakness and the need for God's grace. We cannot move forward until we submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't allow Satan to entice and tempt you, and that's easier said than done. To resist is not going to be easy, but there is a promise that if we resist the devil, then he will flee from us. Satan is to be looked upon as an enemy and to be opposed as an enemy. We need to watch from our watchtowers and guard against his attacks. I know it's difficult when something is tempting you day after day. We're not fighting someone half our size. We are fighting the master of all deceitful disguises. We need to prepare ourselves and put on our armour. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We have lots of protection in God's armour, but we also have a weapon and we need to use it. Our weapon is the word of God, the Bible. When we are tempted, we need to trust the truth of God's word and shout it out at the devil. And we cannot do that if we never read the Bible or study it or save some of it in our brains to speak out when we do need it. Here is just one example of using the word of God as a weapon. You are about to open your laptop. You are either, you are either going to look at pornography or see something equally as unhealthy, or you're about to act like a troll on social media, or just vent your anger online for everyone else to see. Stop. Pause. Pray. Ask God to help you overcome. And I know it's an old-fashioned thing, but say to yourself, what would Jesus do? You know, when you really say that and think about it, he's not going to do that. And then quote a Bible verse. And we've already got one here today. Resist the devil and he will flee. Close the laptop. Walk away. And if you have to do this 30 or 40 or 50 times every day, do it. Resist the devil with God's word and the devil will flee. It may take weeks. It may take months. But to do nothing is not resisting. God will not do it for us. Uh, he says to us, resist. Just as a sword in its sheath and hung on the back of a castle door is absolutely no good for defence and resistance, so a Bible left unread on a shelf cannot help us resist the devil. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Who needs to take the first step? We do. We cannot hope for God's mercy unless we approach him and ask for it. If we prefer to remain at a distance from God, then we are fooling ourselves because we will not be able to receive God's favour. Think about the prodigal son. Now he really had made a mess of his life. He had taken half his father's money, wasted it all on women, drink and a wild life. When he was in poverty and hunger, he came to his senses. He did not go back to his father to demand his rightful position. No, in humility he decided to go back to his father and ask if he could live as a servant in his father's household. Firstly, he realised that he needed his father. And secondly, he went back humbly. He made the first steps and when in sight of his family home, his father ran out to meet him. So it is with our father in heaven. If we draw near to him, then he will draw near to us. Purify yourselves. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The heart is where our motives and intentions are planned and our hands are the tools that put into practice what we're thinking. We need to stop sinning and approach God with a desire to be clean and pure and holy. Don't be satisfied with an outward change, just putting away visible sins. There must be a deeper work than that, a work that reaches into our very hearts. If our heart, our attitudes, our motives are wrong, then nothing about us can be okay against God, God's standards. If we look extremely good and holy and spiritual from the outside, but we still have secret sins, dishonesty of the heart, then it's clear we do not have true faith. We are double-minded, dividing ourselves between God and the world. Take a long look at yourselves honestly. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I said it was going to be good, didn't I? But it's all right, it is. This does not mean that we have to be miserable for the rest of our life. It means be sincere in your sorrow for your sins. Express deep heartfelt sorrow for what you've done. And I must do the same. Show and express the remorse that Peter felt when he denied Jesus rather than the shallow repentance that Judas uh, showed. And it wasn't sincere at all. All sin must be wept over or, or let it deal with you in, in eternity. Take a good look at ourselves and ac express our sorrow because of our sin. We don't need to go around feeling depressed and unworthy and a complete failure for the rest of our lives. What the verse is saying is take sin seriously, be saddened by it, understand the effect of sin and in humility repent. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humbling ourselves means recognising that our worth comes from God alone. God is worthy of all praise, we are not. Although we do not deserve God's favour, he re reaches out to us in love and gives us worth and dignity despite our human shortcomings. All he asks is that we submit to him, we resist the devil, we come near to him, we purify ourselves, we take a good look at ourselves and repent, repent of our sin. James wrote this letter to the early church because they were failing big time. They did not have the benefit of the Bible in their hand like we do. We have the sword of the spirit, the word of God to protect us, to help us resist the devil. The Bible is our Swiss army knife of books. It is multifunctional. It is a weapon, a light to our feet, an instruction manual and a book of love. 
If we don't read it and put it into practice, how can we expect to be a better Christian? If we don't read it, how can we expect to be able to draw near to God? Our Heavenly Father loves us and he wants our full attention. This passage is tough on us, but it also gives us great hope. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Amen.